like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on using technology-based tools in behavioral health, best practices for improving access. This is based in part on tip 60 by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, tip 60 is called Technology-Based Therapeutic Tools. Go figure. You can find that for free on the SAMHSA website if you want to download it. It is kind of a long text, but if you're really interested in this area, you can, you know, read up on it. It's also a little bit outdated now. It was written a few years ago and you know how technology, you know, just speeds right ahead. So there are some new developments that we will talk about today, which is why I said it's based in part on that tip. Today, we're going to explore the benefits and drawbacks to technology-assisted counseling, learn about some of the different technology tools available, and identify ways technology can be used in your practice to enhance client success and be culturally responsive. Why do we want to use technology-based care? Now, before COVID, you know, there were a lot of questions about why to use that. There was a lot of resistance to using it. Once COVID is gone and through COVID, we've had to use it. But once COVID is gone, there are still reasons that we may want to continue to use it. <clears throat> Mobile devices are becoming universal in our culture. Most of us have an extra appendage now. We carry around our our mobile device with us everywhere. The use of, of electronic media and information technologies in behavioral health treatment is rapidly gaining acceptance. Not everybody agrees on what's acceptable and what's not, whether it needs to be video or it can be audio or <clears throat> whether you can do, there's a big debate about whether even with video-based counseling, you can do an assessment using technology-based care or whether that still should be done in office. Believe it or not, up until, you know, before COVID, that was still a debate with several boards, you know, certif certification boards, uh, licensure boards, as well as among, you know, professionals themselves. It is important to know what your board specifically says in their code of ethics regarding telemental health. Technology allows alternative models of care to be offered to clients with specific needs that limit their ability or interest in participating in more con conventional settings. When we think about addiction, there are there's still a lot of stigma associated with it, unfortunately, and that's a challenge. When we think about uh, treatment, when we think about group treatment especially, people may be more apprehensive of participating if they have a high profile position. Maybe they are in politics or they're around here in Nashville. We have a lot of celebrities that really value their privacy. So technology-based care can um, help with that because the therapist can see the, the client, even if you're doing a, a group, but everybody else in the room doesn't have to be able to see each other. So it does give a certain amount of privacy to that individual. People with ADD or ADHD who may have difficulty sitting through an hour-long group may be able to get nuggets by participating in, in shorter sessions. And there are a lot of apps out there that aim to teach basic cognitive behavioral skills, for example, that can be very useful for people with ADD or ADHD uh, who might not be able to sit through an hour psychoeducational group. Some people have chronic pain. I remember when I was in the uh, residential treatment, we would have people who had chronic pain, especially chronic back pain, and sitting in the chairs. If, you, if you've ever been in group treatment, 
uh, or in a group treatment facility, most of them have really crappy chairs for for group treatment. And we were lucky we had uh, our chairs were padded, but a lot of them didn't have arms, um, which does make it a little bit more awkward for people. And, you know, if people have back conditions or if they're pregnant or something else that makes it difficult for them to sit for a long period of time, that can be a problem. With technology-based care, people can be participating in group and walking around their living room, but not disturbing everybody else with their movement and time. And we're going to talk more about these in a little while. Technology-assisted care, henceforth referred to as TAC, can reach many people otherwise unable to access services. I came from a place in rural, if you want to say rural Florida, yes, there are such places, where you know some of our counties, the whole county, had a grand total of 5,000 people or less. And that's, you know, Gainesville, kind of almost all the way up to Tallahassee. There's a lot of rural area there. And for people to access services, they would have to come to a metro area. They would have to go to Tallahassee, Jacksonville, or um, Gainesville, which oftentimes was a really long drive. So technology-assisted care can reach people. It also can make services available to people in, you know, some of those more remote areas with specialists. A lot of times you're not going to find an eating disorder specialist or a sex addiction specialist in the middle of rural Tennessee or rural Florida, but they are in those metro areas. And in order for somebody in that rural area to access services, they have two choices, telehealth or going driving there, which could be an hour, hour and a half each way. So there are a lot of benefits. It's accessible in a wide variety of settings. People can access services from their home. If they've got children, this is a big help because they may not have to find a babysitter and pay for babysitting on top of um on top of counseling and everything else. It can be made available to people at other places that are um, accessible to them. Maybe people in this area, wherever it is, they don't have internet at their house. Okay, well, how can we make it accessible? It can be made accessible in carols or pods or whatever you want to call it, um, in social services offices, community community centers, libraries, um, Places where people would potentially frequent. I've seen a couple of places that have paired up with um, pharmacies and grocery stores that have pharmacies because a lot of times they have a room where the pharmacist can have a private consultation with the client and that room can be used, a computer can be put in there and people can actually, you know, go in there and use the computer there in order to access services. It takes a little bit of creativity, especially in rural areas, but that is one of our big hurdles to helping people access quality uh, treatment, whether it's mental health or addictions. We can also have computers in schools that can be accessed, you know, I hate to say it, the principal's office. It's been a long time since I've been in a public school. But I know there are places where there is privacy, where people can go and, and access a uh, telehealth clinician. That saves providers from having to travel from school to school to school. If they're able to maybe serve three or four different schools in the county um, from their desk because the students come in and they just check in and they do telehealth. 
Emergency rooms is another place where it's been used a lot for screening for entrance into either crisis stabilization or detoxification um, or even residential sometimes. But generally, if somebody's in the ER, they need to detox first. But the emergency room physician can put the client, uh, put the patient on with somebody virtually using a tablet and, you know, the detox nurse at the detox facility can do the screening, screen the person, get them all ready so the transition can go easier. Healthcare providers' offices, it's great. I love it when I see primary care physicians that have embraced mental health care as part of what's necessary and they make it available. They have an office that is dedicated to providing mental health treatment and they you know they may have a computer there for people to access individual you know like they would do telehealth and they may also facilitate groups they can have their uh, one of their nursing staff or one of their you know CNAs monitor what's going on but people can come in and sit in group and just like you would have a meeting like this, the clinician can provide psychoeducation to the people in that physician's office uh, about a particular topic. So again, you're saving a lot of time, you're saving a lot of travel, but you're also making it uh, more accessible. And when I say time and travel, I'm talking on the clinician's part as well as the client's part. And mobile devices, you know, we do have a lot of apps and I will talk about my disdain for those in a little while, but there are a lot of apps that are out there. And people have their mobile devices. They are able to access counseling, you know, literally in their pocket. So that's a good thing that they have it with them. Law enforcement has also taken, and we've seen this big push lately to pair uh, mental health with law enforcement. And there's, you know, however you feel about that is how you feel, but it's happening. And in Gainesville, they actually have been doing it for a while where law enforcement has a tablet. They keep a tablet with them, an iPad, you know, whatever. And if they encounter a client who needs de-escalation, who needs a counselor to work with them, instead of the law enforcement officer who hasn't had the six years of training uh, trying to muddle through and de-escalate the client, they are able to punch up a... Um, video chat with the crisis stabilization counselor who's able to virtually work with the client right then and there. Yes, it sounds like a long time. Um, my husband was law enforcement for many years, and his first reaction was they don't have time to sit on the scene for three hours for a, for a counseling call. And that's true. But the use of this is not for counseling. It's for de-escalation. And what they've done in Gainesville is, you know, the, the clinician is able to develop rapport with the person who is dysregulated at that particular point in time. They do it a lot more effectively and efficiently than many cops are able to do because they don't have the training, not because they don't want to or, or whatever. So this is actually proven to be very, very helpful and very, very useful in, in Gainesville. Um, so I'm hoping to see that expand to more law enforcement departments, you know, throughout the nation in order to make mental health care accessible. Um, overcrowded programs is another reason why 
telemental health, technology-assisted care can be super helpful. I'll refer back to Gainesville, but even here in Nashville, a lot of times there are waiting lists for people to get into programs, even IOP programs. And there's only so many therapists in the Nashville area that are doing substance abuse IOP. When you start using technology-assisted care, people in anywhere in Tennessee can access services, even IOP services, with a clinician anywhere in Tennessee. So that greatly expands the competition, if you will, but the availability of of services. So that is a really awesome way to make services more available in in places where there are high waiting lists. We know that once people go on waiting lists, a lot of times they drop out before they're actually admitted to treatment. I would see this time and time again for our detox waiting list, for our residential waiting list. If people had to wait, they were there, they were in crisis, they were motivated right then. If you sent them away and you said, yeah, check back in two or three weeks, by then they had either relapsed or they had found something else to do or you know, heaven forbid something worse had happened. Uh, so we want to try to make sure that services are available. Some people don't have transportation, especially if uh, when you're working with people who have uh, alcohol addiction, a lot of people who fall into that category have DUIs and they're not allowed to drive. They're not able to drive. Now that's not everybody. There's, you know, Probably the majority of people who qualify for alcohol use disorder haven't gotten a DUI, but there is a significant number who have. So we do want to be sensitive to those sorts of things. Some reduced costs can be passed on to the client. Now, what I've seen is that doesn't happen, but it is possible, and in my opinion, ethical to pass some of the cost on if you're not having to pay for a... 2,000 square foot brick and mortar building and the insurance for it and the electricity and all that stuff, um, you know, it can give you a little bit more wiggle room for sliding scale. And it facilitates coordination of services and care management between providers. It's really easy for providers to jump on a uh, virtual meeting and talk real quick instead of what we used to have to do where we would, you know, once a month, we would all have to slog down to somewhere and sit in a, a boardroom and do case coordination. So it, it can be much more effective. And you, I have found that other providers are much more amenable to doing case conferences via telehealth than if they have to block out time to go meet somebody Um, or have you come meet them or whatever, because they feel like they can do it more efficiently. Telemental health can also, or technology-assisted care, can also meet the needs of the adult learner. Adult learners learn in chunks. They want stuff that is applicable to them. So when we talk about technology-assisted care, and we're going to talk about some of the different types in a minute, we're not just talking about video-based counts. We want to think much broader than that. The adult learner wants things that are applicable to them and their situation. They want it in chunks, um, not, you know, an hour at a time necessarily. So tele- uh, technology-assisted care can help there. It provides more comprehensive services. And a lot of times, certain types of 
technology-assisted care are referred to as clinician extenders because it allows the client to connect with clinical expertise outside of the therapy room, outside of the IOP sessions or the individual sessions. Uh, Individuals can participate in online moderated forums or live group chats. All patients can access uh, the web or app-based exercises that you give them. You can put PDFs on your website that they can download. Um, activities, videos you can put on your website or you can even host them on YouTube. You can host them publicly or you can make it unlisted so they have to have the link, whatever you want to do. There are ways to do it. They are not providing protected health information, so there's not the, the HIPAA concern there if they are... Uh, logging on to download or to watch a video. The big thing you want to watch out for, you don't want to, uh, you want to make sure that you're not using IP address logging uh, because that actually is considered uh, protected health information. Many encourage clients to reach out uh, more often. We can have a client watch a video or review a forum more once a day, or if they're struggling, they may be able to reach out like in the rooms is an online 12 step forum website and people who are struggling at two in the morning when they are not able or willing to go out to a meeting, most places don't have 24 hour meetings, some do, they can access services right then and there. They can access support. Many online support forums are free and maintained by someone else, similar to support group meetings facilitated by churches or crisis centers. If you're referring somebody to a support forum for depression, for addiction disorders, whatever it is, do due diligence, make sure, you know, preview it yourself, make sure it's appropriate for the clients that you're referring to it. Um, Sometimes, sometimes they can go bad if they are not moderated effectively. uh, They can, they can not, they can be more harmful than helpful. Millennials and Gen Z grew up communicating through chat and are, say, they're most comfortable with those modalities. Several studies in the tip underscored the acceptability and appeal to youths of computer-delivered interventions. Significant barriers to adolescents' participation in addiction treatment may be addressed by internet-based addiction services. For a lot of adolescents, that can be transportation, that can be shame, but adolescents, and if you've worked in substance abuse and, well, even mental health, you know that, you know, typically you're not going to put high school students with adults. They need to have their own specialized treatment program. And those are much fewer and further between than adult programs. So this, again, helps increase the accessibility of addiction services. Many youth report interactive computer learning environments preferable to traditional learning environments because it allows them to solve problems actively and independently and receive individualized feedback. So if they're using this interactive environment, they download a worksheet and they complete it. And you can actually make the worksheets, PDFs that are fillable when they submit it and You have to work with your tech people to make sure it's HIPAA compliant. But when they submit it, all of the answers go to a database on your server and it auto-populates so you can see the information um, right away. It can even be set so it tunnels or, you know, goes right into your uh, electronic medical record. So there are some really neat things that you can do with that.
but it does allow them to work at their own pace so they're not feeling rushed. A growing body of research has highlighted the utility of technology for health promotion and addiction treatment among aging populations. People who are older have their own specific needs. Transportation may again be an issue. Uh, They also have specific needs for um, medicine and treatment needs in regard to detoxification because their livers work differently. And it's important to have a geriatric Uh, physician overseeing their detoxification and any, you know, medication that they may get. Uh, For example, um, a lot of your benzodiazepines clear the system of the elder person a lot slower than it does the, the younger person. So it can build up to toxic levels really, really quickly. Computerized tools designed to enhance cognitive skills through exercises that target problem solving, attention, memory, and abstract reasoning have been shown to have promise in populations with severe mental illness, as well as among individuals with substance use disorders. It's important to help people uh, develop their impulse control skills, develop their and, and enhance their higher order cognitive reasoning um, so they can think through the choices that they're getting ready to make. The downside, got to present the downside, a lack of nonverbals, sometimes even in video chat. If you are in video chat and somebody has a really bad internet connection, uh, you may not get the nonverbals or if they don't have their camera set so you can see their their trunk, um, you may not get a whole lot of effective nonverbals. So, but most of the time with video chat, you're going to get a lot of nonverbals. When I work with my clients, you know, I insist that I'm at least able to see them from the shoulders up, um, if, if not the waist up. There's lack of immediate feedback when it's done asynchronously. Forums, online activities, those can be great for homework type activities, but you don't want somebody who is, for example, suicidal or right on the precipice of a relapse, or maybe they did relapse and they really need to be transported to detox or the emergency room. You don't want them posting in a forum where you're going to see it 36 hours later. So if you're using asynchronous activities, there need to be clear rules about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate in that thing. Asynchronous interaction needs to be addressed in patient responsibilities and regularly reviewed for appropriateness. If you're working with a person who um, is having a hard time staying clean or who has borderline personality disorder, asynchronous interaction may not be appropriate because they are still too dysregulated um, to be able to manage for long periods on their own. And it's important that if they have something to say, they have a live person to connect to. Clients who do not type well may find text-based interventions frustrating. Now, I know my daughter, I think she types on her on her iPhone faster than she can actually talk. But not everybody can do that. My old boss, bless his heart, even to this day, the man types with two fingers. And, you know, he's brilliant, but he's just never... Typing has never been his thing, uh, and and it would be extremely frustrating to do an hour counseling session henpecking. Um, it's also frustrating for people who have poor vision because I know with me, if I don't have my glasses on, I can't see the text on my phone to save my life. Um, 
and and so if you're working with somebody who does have uh, vision problems, text-based interventions may not be super helpful. So you're going to need to look more to the video-based. As I said earlier, not all boards approve of telemental health. So it's important, whatever board you're certified by, that you check their codes of ethics to see if they have a statement specifically regarding telemental health and or um, whether you can do assessments via telemental health. Again, a lot of that has been waived during the pandemic because we've had to go to virtual counseling. But uh, once this is passed, I don't know what's going to happen to the regulation. Non-video-based methods of providing services can create legal and ethical issues when there's no ability to verify who the clinician is speaking to. If you're texting with somebody, it could be who they say they are. It could be somebody completely different. It's important that when you have... Uh, non-visual technology-assisted interventions, that there are secure logins with a username and a secure password, and ideally a secret phrase. Um, So the two of you have a particular phrase that you ask the person ahead of time um, before you start the actual counseling session to make sure that it's them. Billability. Some insurance companies, even to this day, outside of the emergency authorization because of the pandemic, some insurance companies were still not reimbursing for telemental health. Under Medicaid in 2013, 39 states did cover telehealth services. Um, Individual psychotherapy, individual and group health assessment and intervention, and smoking cessation were covered. Another article indicates that at least 19 states mandate some form of reimbursement for telehealth services, including from private private insurers. So some states have actually taken a proactive stance and said places like Magellan and Blue Cross and stuff actually do have to reimburse for telehealth at the same rate as face-to-face services. Most providers will only reimburse, insurance providers will only reimburse for interactive video-based counseling. They're not going to reimburse for email, text, chat, or even in many cases, telephone. It's important to know what the guidelines are. <clears throat> there, This document here, Psychotherapy Coding Clarifications, Telemedicine Code Modifier 2016, you can look at that. Um, prior to the pandemic, um, most places required that you have a modifier on your CPT code that indicated that it was telehealth or technology-assisted versus actual face-to-face in the same office. Um, It's just from an ethical and and legal perspective, it's important to be aware. Additional HIPAA and high-tech compliance regulations, including maintaining signed business associate agreements, is essential for technology-assisted care. Skype is not compliant. Gmail is not compliant. Second Life is not compliant. Uh, Zoom is not compliant. Unless you get um, upgraded packages and... Those places actually sign a business associate agreement with you. They can't say, oh, it's compliant, you're fine. You have to have a copy of that business associate agreement to be in compliance with HIPAA and HITECH. Home offices must maintain HIPAA and HITECH security protocols. Um, Protected health information has to be behind at least two locked doors or drawers, you know, et cetera. 
And remember that deducting the cost of the home office from taxes has historically been considered an audit flag. The same is not true for virtual services provided from a freestanding business office, which really stinks. But historically, that's been the way it is. With the pandemic, I don't know what's going to happen henceforth and forevermore, but it is, you know, worth noting that. So how can we use telemental health? Assessment. As I said, not all boards are down with it, but there are a lot of boards who have recognized it. And during the pandemic, they're starting to embrace it. They're recognizing that using uh, video counseling, we are able to see the nonverbals. We are able to do an adequate, accurate assessment. The only things you can't do, you know, obviously doing a detox assessment virtually um, may not be something that you can do uh, in the early stages, you know, that's going to, that would be something a doctor would be doing anyway, but doing a typical mental health or substance abuse psychosocial assessment, you know, you can do that with, with video counseling pretty easily. Detox monitoring by a physician. Now this takes a little creativity, but it can be done. There are a lot of ambulatory detox places that have started em employing this. People have a at-home blood pressure monitor. They have an at-home, one of those little um, pulse ox monitors that goes on their finger. Um, so the doctor can get, they can take their readings of their blood pressure and their pulse ox for the doctor. Um, for uh, detox purposes, they can also potentially do certain types of drug screening. I'm going to jump down a little bit uh, virtually. If you have somebody on video and they have an at-home breathalyzer, which I strongly recommend for as, far, as long as we're talking about technology, you can get inexpensive, relatively speaking, at-home use breathalyzers that you can carry with you. So if you're a person who likes to go out for happy hour or have a few drinks with dinner when you go out to eat, you can have one of those with you so you can test your own blood alcohol before you get behind the wheel um, and make sure that you are not DUI. And, you know, if it if you are DUI or your blood alcohol level is too high, it tell, you know how long you've got to wait. And then you can retest before you get in the car to prevent getting another DUI. I'm a big proponent for that. And that is super important. Um, sweat patches. People can use sweat patches to, uh, for drug testing. There are, they can monitor for a variety of different drugs. The sweat patch is applied on camera. So the doctor can see the person applying it and the sweat patch is removed on camera, you know, seven days later. So the doctor can see and the sweat patch is put into the envelope to be sent to the lab and sealed and you know you put the little um, tape over it so it can't be adulterated or whatever I don't know the word I'm looking for right now but you know you can watch the person doing that so you can see it going uh, from being applied to being taken off to being sent out and we know that there was no um, adulteration in the process the same thing is true with uh, saliva and hair test kits for drugs. Now, can you do urine screens? Well, um, <clears throat> I think there would be some ethical issues with doing observed urine drops via video. I just have issues with that myself. I don't know if people are doing it. 
Could it be done? Yes. Is it ethical? I wouldn't think so. You can partner with local labs to do the observed urine drops, though. And we can use therapist extenders. A lot of the apps that are out there, and here's where I'll go on my little tirade, a lot of the apps out there do allow people to keep journals, to keep logs of their mood, etc. But they don't provide a lot of useful feedback. It seems a lot of the apps that I downloaded and tried seemed very um, rudimentary, somewhat condescending um, in in many situations because it gave you like six choices. And if you said you had anxiety, it would pop up a um, suggestion that everybody feels overwhelmed sometimes. You know, I need more than that. If I'm feeling super anxious, having a computer tell me basically um, that my anxiety is pointless and that I'm wrong, that's not going to, that's probably not going to sit really well with me. So I haven't been thrilled with any of the apps that I have seen in terms of actually helping people apply the tools effectively when they're having a moment outside of the therapy session. As I said, a lot of the apps are really good for gathering data and for teaching information about, you know, what are some, there's one that's um, uh, DBT flashcards, and it helps people um, identify DBT skills and practice one each day. Ways that we can use it. We can email with people. I personally don't feel comfortable with solely email counseling, but if you give people an assignment, maybe writing their autobiography, and they can email it back to you using HIPAA compliance secure email, um, that's one way. There are apps we just talked about, online forums and targeted social networking sites like In The Rooms. In The Rooms is one of the best ones that's been out there forever. It's active. Smart Recovery also has active um, online Uh, support groups, support rooms that people can go to. If you're not familiar, In the Rooms is a 12-step based support. Smart Recovery is a CBT based support. People can use both of them. Um, uh, Celebrate Recovery does not have technology available. So that's, unfortunately, that's not an option for that one. But with the pandemic, I keep saying that, but it's true. uh, A lot of places have started offering virtual Zoom-based, or I think all of them are Zoom-based, virtual meetings that people can attend. So it's it would be interesting, probably in six months from now, once we've got the vaccine and life is allegedly back to normal, um, I'm optimistic, that uh, to see whether these organizations are continuing to do virtual meetings or whether they've gone back to solely face-to-face. You can use video and telephone chat. Virtual reality and immersion therapy is new out there. And I encourage you to stay up to date on the findings. A lot of um, research is being done, especially out of the VA, with virtual reality and immersion therapy, where they put on the goggles and they are kind of in the moment, so to speak. Not everybody is down with it. Some people love it. Uh, You can go to clinicaltrials.gov and type in virtual reality and see all of the trials that are going on right now for just virtual reality. And it is really interesting, virtual reality and PTSD especially. 
you can do virtual art therapy. And I've given you links to a couple of different sites for that offer suggestions for doing virtual art therapy. There are some websites that allow you to, for example, um, do cartoons. You can storyboard. And there are other sites like Canva that you can go to and you can create collages. When uh, my mother passed away, I... On, on Canva, I made the poster that we used at, at her funeral, and I was able to do the collage that way. You can also do the collages, um, like in Canva, for example, with the, with the photos, and then send them off to a photo processor and have it turned into a blanket or a mural or, or something else. So there are a lot of different things that you can do. It's just only limited by your creativity. And a lot of people, especially youth, are aware of multiple tools out there and multiple different art-related sites that uh, they can use. Even things like, and I know it makes some people cringe, but even things like the filters on Snapchat, you know, if they're choosing a particular filter, uh, ask them why they chose that filter and, you know, what was behind that. You know, if they chose a bunny versus a lion one day or something. Several studies have demonstrated the feasibility, acceptability, and efficacy of using telephone-based counseling interventions targeting substance youth among youth. Clients may participate in counseling sessions more if they're offered in a uh, distance telehealth environment as an alternative or an adjunct to in-person settings. And some clinicians do do that. They have a face-to-face group meeting once a week and then the the other days of the week it's virtual so it's it's a blended sort of environment computer-based programs that are not web-based so this is something you install directly on your pc uh, have utility in specific settings where internet access is limited such as jail and certain residential treatment programs i know we didn't want our people surfing the web you know stumbling upon porn whatever um So a lot of times our computers were not hooked up to the internet, but we did have a variety of different computer-based programs that were available to them locally. Web-based self-directed therapeutic tools offer a number of advantages, including the ability to update centrally and deploy content within a given program as needed. And again, these are uh, tools, and they're, they're a little pricey most of the time. They're tools that teach for example, DBT skills or CBT skills. So it's, you know, maybe seven or 10 session thing that people, uh, that that is deployed on a bank of computers at your facility. And then when the company updates their curriculum, you can push out those updates to all 10 computers really easily and keep everything fresh and up to date. With web-based self-directed therapeutic tools, you can also uh, track user activity within a program over time via unique login information. Just like you do in a classroom, if you're an instructor, you can see which students have completed which modules and how they're doing, if there's some sort of scoring rubric, for example. And you can aggregate user activity across client groups. So if you see that, you know, Everybody has access to these 30 activities, but only these 10 activities are getting used. You can, you know, ask yourself why, but you can gear more activities to be more like the 10 that are getting used versus the 20 that are not. Computer-based self-directed can be used for assessment and behavioral health services. Um, 
Now, you don't want somebody to, to do a complete psychosocial independently, but a lot of times they can fill out a fair amount of information on their own and then meet with the therapist virtually to discuss what's in there. And some people would prefer that. Um, it has been tested for uh, uh, assessing diabetes, eating disorders, substance use disorder prevention, HIV, AIDS prevention, and methadone maintenance. Uh, treatment. So, you know, there are ways that you can use it. Think about all the questions that you have to ask on your assessment that really don't require a master's degree to ask. You know, people can complete those ahead of time. They, there are a lot of things like the Beck Depression Inventory that have um, virtual digital versions available that people can complete online and that can get sent to the therapist so the therapist can see all those things. The person was able to complete it in the comfort of their own home instead of having to sit through a three-hour intake in your office. You know, there's, there's a lot of win-wins here. Literature reviews underscore the effectiveness of interventions in producing health behavior change. Comparisons of computer-delivered interventions with person-delivered interventions generally report comparable outcomes. And when most of those studies did look at face-to-face, -face, you know, in-person versus video-based counts. You know, the, that's what they were comparing. They weren't comparing email versus face-to-face. -face. But they did find that computer-delivered interventions can be as effective as in-office intervention. Computerized treatments for mental health issues have been most widely developed and extensively used for anxiety, traumatic stress, and depressive disorders. Uh, computer programs have successfully implemented techniques, these are the ones that teach, such as cognitive restructuring, relaxation training, and systematic desensitization. Now, there are a lot of really good apps for meditation and relaxation training that people can download. If that is a skill that you want them to learn, that is something that, you know, I do think that there are several apps out there that are pretty good and free. An interactive web-based intervention called the Therapeutic Education System delivers cognitive behavioral therapy treatment for individuals with substance use disorders and may be as effective as traditional counseling. Now, there's an emphasis on may here, uh, and I will give you a link to that at the end of this presentation. It's uh, called uh, cog uh, Computer-Based Training for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT4CT. There were no prices on the website for how much it costs, so just buyer beware. <clears throat> Chat rooms typically refer to open rooms online in which individuals can come and go as they wish and communicate synchronously at the same time with any or all participants in the chat room. Many behavioral health chat rooms are moderated by a clinician who posts comments, guides discussions, and may screen comments before allowing them to post, just to make sure you don't get something inflammatory. We saw with the whole Zoom debacle several months ago or weeks ago, it all kind of blends now, um, that you will have trolls, and it's important to be aware of that and make sure that uh, what's getting posted is not going inflammatory or triggering. Whether chat rooms are overseen by clinicians or by peers, they typically include guidelines for participation with designated moderators who monitor content. And this is true whether they're, you know, um, like forums or synchronous chat rooms. Online support forums are typically organized in a bulletin board format that allows users to post anonymous text-based communications. And I know this is probably old hat to most of you, but 
not everybody has gotten into all of these different strains. So I'm just kind of going over the fact that there are those forums out there, kind of like Reddit, but Reddit is not HIPAA compliant. Um, I'm just saying kind of like Reddit. Online support groups typically enable asynchronous communication, as do email lists. Now, one site that I found that, you know, I kind of really liked was one called Patients Like Me, which offers web-based exchanges of information among clients related to numerous health conditions and disorders, including types of depression, addiction, ranging from major depressive disorder to postpartum depression, opioid addiction to alcoholism to sex addiction, um, where they talk about their condition as well as treatments that have worked for them and treatments that haven't worked. It's not medical advice. It's people saying, this has been my experience. And that is really uh, validating for a lot of clients to get on there and, and get hope. But also if they try something that, you know, is supposed to work for everybody and it doesn't work for them, they may feel very defeated. And if they get on there and they see somebody else has had a similar experience, they're like, okay, you know, I'm not alone. There is still hope. You know, maybe I can try something else. So there is a lot of good um, sharing that happens there. And I have found that uh, most of the time the, the discussions are very objective and on point. Email can be used for routine contacts like setting appointments or for therapeutic purposes such as following up on counseling sessions. Just, you know, how did it go when you tried to do XYZ? Doesn't have to be something super in-depth. It can be used to send motivational messages encouraging clients to engage in specific therapeutic activities such as don't forget to do your uh, mindfulness log today or remember to do your 20 minutes of positivity and actually conducting some portion of counseling. Now, I'm not big on this one. I already said that, but some people are. Uh, for example, if you're having somebody uh, write an autobiography, you know, they can do that and they can email that to you instead of, you know, trying to do that in face-to-face -face over three or four sessions. Emails and texts can be automated or generated by providers or clients to send daily prompts. Clients can actually schedule uh, SMS messages to remind them, for example, to do their meditation exercises, to do their mindfulness check-in. Um, they can figure out how to schedule that, or they can download an app that is typically designed to remind people to take their medication, but when it dings, it reminds them to do whatever the activity is. Chat counseling in chat rooms or via instant messaging typically requires more abbreviated interactions, but are often more real time. And when I say chat, I'm talking about text chat. Services provided via mobile devices in real time offer the opportunity to provide in the moment interventions. Not everybody is down with making themselves available during a window of time, like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, for clients to text if they are, you know, needing a, a pick-me-up, if they're needing a, a nudge, whatever you want to call it. One-sided text messages, for instance, from provider to the consumer, have shown considerable utility in prompting treatment compliance and self-monitoring of health behavior, such as healthy eating, exercise, sleeping, and reviewing relapse um, prevention plans, whatever you want them to do. A text message can often prompt them to do it. PTSD Coach is an app created by the VA and helps users learn about and manage symptoms that commonly occur after trauma. It has reliable information on PTSD, 
tools for screening and tracking symptoms, convenient, easy-to-use skills to help clients handle stress symptoms. Now, these are just educational modules that are out there. It's not something where the person logs on and says, I'm experiencing flashbacks right now or feeling hypervigilant, what do I do? It's just, here are a bunch of tools that you could use. So it's kind of like handing somebody a a toolbox and hoping they know how to use it. Uh, There are direct links to support and help so they can reach out to somebody. And continuous accessibility. As of February 2014, it had been downloaded 138,000 times in 84 countries. That was the last stat I could find. Obviously, that was six years ago. Clinicaltrials.gov, I mentioned before, um, in 2014, there were 190 clinical trials um, related to virtual reality, including exposure therapy for PTSD, uh, rehabilitation after a stroke, uh, weight loss through the use of Second Life, medical and scientific training and education, wearable sensors, and uh, one of you brought it up earlier, but... um, you, there are a lot of other wearable sensors out there for heart rate. They do new, they do now have some sensors that can actually monitor your um, heart rhythm, your EKG. Uh, is it as accurate as what's in the office? No. Just like the um, keychain sensors are not as accurate as what the state troopers have because it's not calibrated as often. Um, but... It gives you a pretty good idea if, for example, you're using the keychain sensor and you blow a .07 and the legal limit is .08 in your area. You know, you probably want to wait just a few more minutes to let it get down a little bit more. The nice thing with the keychain sensors, too, is you also have proof sometimes. A lot of them will store that data on a chip. Um, so you do have proof if for some reason you do get pulled over um, when you when you blew what you blew. And uh, so if it is extremely dis- disparate, you may have some legal recourse, but you know, I try not to get into that. Anyhow, uh, online social networks can be problematic due to their general lack of HIPAA compliance and the tendency of clients to post private information in public forums. I know there are groups on Facebook, for example, for addiction support and depression support. Obviously, they are not HIPAA compliant at all. And a lot of times I find people are overposting their personal stuff. Additionally, providers who use such networks are faced with how to act on their legal and ethical duties in such venues. So if you're moderating one of those and you happen to be licensed, um, you know, what are your legal and ethical responsibilities, especially since it's not HIPAA compliant? The use of technology in therapy may be contraindicated for people experiencing significant emotional distress or complex situations. Text-based communications between providers and clients are protected under HIPAA, HITECH, and CFR 42 Part 2 and some state laws. There are HIPAA-compliant text chat apps. Um, I have one on my mobile device that I use, You can, and some are free, that, that you can use. Text transcripts can be subpoenaed from providers or ISPs because they're not yet considered psychotherapy notes and not yet considered privileged communication to the extent that they can't be subpoenaed. So be aware of that if you're 
engaging in text or email with your clients. HealthIT.gov offers a number of resources for you to, um, if you are using mobile devices in a way that you need help with protecting and securing client health information. Essential elements, according to NBCC, essential elements of informed consent to participate in uh, technology-assisted care. You need to provide informed consent about the processes and alternatives, whether communication is synchronous or asynchronous, response standards and scheduling. So if you text me, how long do I have to respond before you should text me again or before, you know, how long should you expect? Because sometimes clients will text you and they expect you to be sitting there with the phone in your hand just waiting. They need to know that's not realistic. The frequency of interactions, how you're going to handle misunderstandings in text-based um, chat, for example, and any risks in video-based counseling and alternative treatments or delivery approaches if they don't want to use technology. Individuals who may have access to clinical information, including technical staff, need to be disclosed. You also need to tell them the potential benefits. You need to tell them about their confidentiality, the privacy and privacy risks, ways that they can protect their privacy, including clearing their cash, for example, when they're finished talking to you, roles and credentials of all individuals involved in service delivery, emergency pr procedures if they need face-to-face -face counsel, <coughs> charges and payment for telehealth, just like you would with anything else, how you're going to handle service disruptions. If your power's out and you can't log on to the internet, what is the backup? If their power is out and they can't log on, or if in, you're in the middle of a session and the internet blips out, how does that, how is that handled? And regulatory agencies and places they can file grievances. Telemental health is here to stay in some form or another. Many self-directed programs are extremely useful for all ages and a multitude of diagnoses, especially for early intervention. If we want to teach skills, if we want to help people develop skills of, you know, monitoring their, their eating, uh, monitoring their stress levels, you know, there are a lot of useful apps for that. The use of virtual technologies enables a clinician to individualize treatment to increase compliance, accessibility, and effectiveness. Unfortunately, there are many ethical, regulatory, and legal issues surrounding the use of electronic devices in any aspect of counseling, so it is always good to consult with an IT specialist uh, who, you know, is specifically trained in HIPAA and high-tech compliance, just to make sure that what you're doing is, is okay. And, you know, there are some exceptions to using the HIPAA-compliant HIPAA email and HIPAA-compliant texts and stuff like that, but it's important, and I'm not going to go over those here, um, it's important that you know what your requirements are. Um, Text-based apps that are HIPAA-compliant. Ask that of, and of course, I'm not going to remember what mine's called, but <laughs> I will look it up. Um, it is PMD. So the letter P and then MD like doctor. Um, you can go on and log on to that one. If you do a internet search for free HIPAA compliant text apps, you will come up with a list of about 10 of them and you can find search through. Just remember they have to be willing to actually provide you a business associate agreement. Laura points out that there is one of the personal, um, uh, breathalyzers that has an app on your phone that will record your data and can send it to your doctor. Um, 
Oh, I'm sorry. It's not one of the breathalyzers. It's an EKG app. Um, but you know, that's out there. That's good too. Um, I'm sure that a lot of the breathalyzer apps all, or breathalyzer breathalyzers also have apps that can help them um, log the information and, and store it. If you go to the Center for Technology and Behavioral Health, that's easy to remember. You can just search that um, on, on your browser. Uh, Center for Technology and Behavioral Health. They have all of the most recent up-and-coming research and literature about all sorts of technology, not just e-therapy, but also things like breathalyzers. And there, there's evidently a breathalyzer that can detect marijuana levels now. Who knew? Um, so there's a lot of really new, neat stuff that's coming out in the field of technology that can assist in in the treatment of mood and addictive disorders. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.